Amen. Thank you, worship team. Let's continue to worship by getting in the word. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, I bow before you right now and I know how much I need you. I know, Lord God, in my weakness, I, I cannot stand before your people and preach your truth. I, I need the filling of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> I need the ability that you supply. And I pray for clarity of mind and clarity of speech. And I pray, Lord God, right now that you would remove any type of distraction, any type of work of the enemy to bring deception and hinder hearing. And I pray, Lord God, you'll give us ears to hear what you have to say to us today. And I pray you'll give me the power to preach. I cannot do anything apart from you. And I am relying completely upon your power, giving me that clarity of mind and clarity of speech and liberty and delivery. Let me speak with authority and power and love. And I pray, Lord God, you will revive us today. I pray, Lord God, you will speak to us. Let me, oh, Father, please exalt Christ. For it's in his name I pray. Amen. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 through 14 is the text for today. I'm back in the study of the book of Hebrews. Everyone needs God. Everyone needs a relationship with Him and deep fellowship with Him. As human beings, we're all made in the image of God. And we have a massive void in us that cannot be filled in any other way through any other means than by a relationship with the one true God who makes us whole. Oftentimes when I've been in a witnessing relationship with someone, I'm trying to share the gospel with them, I'll ask them something like this, now do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? And, and sometimes they'll say something like this in response. They'll say, uh, oh, yeah, I talk to him every day. And then the further we get into conversation, we begin to recognize that they really don't have a relationship with Jesus. They think that simply because they acknowledge that God exists, that Jesus exists, and that they just... Uh, focus some words toward him that that's what it means to have a relationship with him but you and I know that's not what it means to have a relationship with him it means that we come through faith repentance faith and surrender to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior that's how we really have a relationship with the one true God but I will submit this to you today no matter how much you have no matter how much you do no matter who you know there's going to come a time in your life when you recognize it is all insufficient. You're going to recognize that that cannot fill you, that cannot, that, that cannot give you true purpose in life, cannot give you true hope in life, because only God can do that. We all need Him. You cannot be happy without God. You cannot be holy without God. You cannot have hope without God. That's why on our, our church mantra is hope found. What we mean by that is that here we're going to give you the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's through Jesus that you can know the one true God and have true hope. And that's what this message is about today. In chapter 8, Dr. Bias a couple of weeks ago did a great job in 
given us an overview of chapter 8 where the writer of Hebrews is encouraging these Hebrew Christians to stay faithful to the Lord by recognizing that the Lord Jesus Christ brings a superior covenant to that of the old covenant. And this covenant, his word is written on our hearts. And so he encourages them to stay faithful to Jesus in that way. We get to chapter 9, and what we find in chapter 9 is what this new covenant looks like, why it is superior to the old one. Now remember, these Hebrew Christians are facing persecution, they're facing opposition, and so they have this temptation to not really be faithful to Jesus, not persevere in their walk with God, but to, to go back under the radar, so to speak, and fit in with their culture better by slipping back into a lifestyle of Judaism. What he's saying to them is, look, Jesus is greater than Judaism. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than the Levitical priesthood. He's greater than the sacrificial system. He's greater than the old covenant. He brings a new covenant. And so with that in mind, we're going to pick up reading in verse 1 of chapter 9. And our text for today is the first 14 verses of this chapter. Here's the word of God. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. That's because they no longer existed then. Verse 6, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation, that is, the time when the new covenant would come. Now, if that's where we still were today, that would be kind of sad. It would be lessening our sense of hope. But in verse 11, there are three beautiful words. But Christ came. As high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, I'm preaching on this subject this morning. The Lord Jesus Christ establishes a better covenant that brings us into the presence of God into an eternal relationship with Him. The writer of Hebrews is encouraging these Christians, stay faithful to Jesus Christ because you're part of the superior new covenant established by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me set some context here for you and just kind of explain this passage. The writer begins this passage with an overview of the old covenant practices. God had established some practices of worship, to worship Him, to experience His presence to a degree. The old covenant was never meant to be permanent. It was never intended uh, to be the means by which a person could establish uh, an eternal and permanent relationship with God. The old covenant was not bad. It was not faulty. God had a purpose for the old covenant. And that purpose was it was symbolic of the very one who would come and be our ultimate deliverer. In verse 1, as part of the old covenant, there, were, there was an earthly sanctuary. There were ordinances and practices of worship that were assigned by God that would take place in that place of worship called the tabernacle. And that tabernacle was made, it was a tent made with animal skins for the most part. And this tabernacle was very important because if you'll, if you'll think about this for a moment, and I think there's a picture of that tabernacle that's going to be on the screen for you. But if you'll just uh, kind, of, kind of think about this for a moment, as it was pointed out by one commentator, there are two chapters in the Bible that deal with the narrative of creation. Now, all throughout the Bible, there is talk of God being creator. He created the heavens and the earth. That's in the Old Testament throughout. It is also throughout the New Testament. The Bible even tells us that the Lord Jesus himself it was the agent by which God created, John chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 tells us these things. But in terms of just the account itself, there's one account dedicated, two chapters dedicated to that account, Genesis and chapter 1 and 2. But did you know that there are 50 chapters in the Bible dealing with the tabernacle? So it's giving emphasis. Why is that? Because of the importance of the tabernacle, who the tabernacle pointed to. Now, in the courtyard area of the tabernacle, it was 150 feet long. It was 75 feet wide. There was a 30 feet wide, 30 foot wide gate. So there could be plenty of worshipers that could go in there. And there was only one gate, by the way. And it was facing east, so only one way to gain access to the tabernacle and to this place of worship and, and where the presence of God would be with His people. And in that courtyard, there was a bronze altar. That altar was there to offer sacrifices. There was also a laver or basin there with water, which was for washings. And then, as you went in from that courtyard into the tent itself, into that first room called the holy place, there were pieces of furniture in that, in that room. First, there was the lampstand, or 
would be a, what we'd know as a menorah. It'd have six branches, three coming off each side, one in the center, and there would be cups for, for oil to be in and wicks. So there would be constant lighting of the tabernacle from that uh, lampstand. Then there was the table of the showbread. And on that table, there would be 12 loaves of bread. That was symbolic of God's provision for his people, how he sustained his people and how he fellowshiped with his people. And then there was the golden altar of incense. The writer of Hebrews kind of puts that within the Holy of Holies. I, I don't think the writer of Hebrews, uh, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. I don't think the Holy Spirit of God was being precise in that moment because the Old Testament teaches us that it's right outside of the Holy of Holies. So, but it had such relation to the Holy of Holies. The writer of Hebrews wrote as he did, as the Spirit of God inspired him. But that altar of incense was symbolic of prayers going up uh, to God. Then there was a second room within that tent. It was 15 by 15 by 15. That is 15 feet cubed. Within that, that's, that was called the holiest of all, or what we would call the holy, the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Within that room, there was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, that Ark had in it three things. There was the golden pot or golden jar containing manna. And that was a reminder of God's provision, even in the light of their unrighteousness. God provided for them. There was also Aaron's rod that budded. That was a reminder of their rebellion against God's authority. Matter of fact, you can read about that in Numbers chapter 17. I don't have time to go into that today and explain all that, but you can get an understanding of that by just simply reading Numbers chapter 17. Then there was the tablets of the covenant. The Ten Commandments, the whole law was, was there. And that was a reminder that the people of God had broken the laws of God. They could not keep the laws of God. It was impossible for them to do. And it was a constant reminder of their unrighteousness, their, their, their rebellion against God, their sinfulness. All three of those things really emphasized the sinfulness of his people. And as God looked down, he would see the sin of his people and how that sin separated them from him. But on top of that, that ark was the mercy seat as a lid. And it had cherubim on each side, symbolizing the presence of God. And on that mercy seat is where the blood of the sacrifice of, on the Day of Atonement was placed. And you can see the picture as God would look down on the things that represent the sinfulness of his people that separate him from that. When that blood was placed there, he would see symbolically the blood which covered those sins and established that fellowship and that relationship with him. All that was wrapped up there in at what took place in the, in the tabernacle. And so it was this system of, of worship set up, and, and those sacrifices were to atone for the sins of the people. And, uh, and, and verse 6 tells us in, in uh, chapter 9 that there was constant service that was taking place. The, the lamps had to always be trimmed and oil added to them so they continue to have light that would take place in the, in the tabernacle. And, uh, and then the uh, incense would be burned. And then uh, on the Sabbath day, the priests would eat the bread on the table and replace with fresh loaves, 12 fresh loaves of bread that would be placed there. So that was taking place all year long. There was also sacrifices offered for sins throughout the year as people recognized their sinfulness. They would come to the priest and 
have a sacrifice offered for their sins. But then there was a special day set aside, verse 7 tells us about, it summarizes. And that special day was called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest would enter into that place that no one went into, that, holy, that most holy place of all, would go in there, first of all, offering sacrifice for his own sins. He would take blood for the sacrifice of his own sins and put that on the mercy seat. Then he would go back out and get a, 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 and from a second sacrifice, take blood back in to put on that mercy seat for the atonement of the sins of the people. And the, verse 7 specifies something there and says that they were, they were sins committed in ignorance. Now, what that uh, probably means, that does not mean that it was only for those sins because nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that. But here's what was expected here. If you did commit sin, you were aware of that, then you, again, you would go to the priest throughout the year, a sacrifice would be offered, but there would be this understanding, there's things you do, there's things you think, there's things you say, you're, un, you're just unaware of how you've broken the law of God and you need forgiveness. And the Day of Atonement would cover all their sin, including those things that were never specifically sacrificed for. But <clears throat> there was something about this that was inadequate to take away sin forever and to establish a permanent relationship because in verse 8, the Scripture says the Holy Spirit was teaching here that uh, under this old covenant, <clears throat> the true way into the presence of God for a true relationship with Him, a permanent relationship with Him, was not yet revealed. And verse 9 uh, says these practices were symbolic. So they were pointing to an ultimate one who would come, an ultimate Savior and Deliverer that would come to take their sin uh, away. And so this system could not even make pure, make perfect the very conscience of the high priest. He's the one coming on behalf of the rest of the people uh, for the atonement for their sins and these, these sacrifices couldn't even perfect him. So how could all the rest of the people that he was mediating for be perfected if they could not perfect him? Again, these things were done as symbols, pointing us to an understanding, we need a Savior. We need an ultimate deliverer. Well, there is one. And verse 11 says, but Christ came. But Christ came. He is the fulfillment of all of those things in the tabernacle that were symbolic of him. Matter of fact, Jesus is the way. The Bible says, Jesus said of himself in John chapter 10 and verse 9, I am the door. Uh, and anyone that comes to him, he'll give eternal life. And that gate of the tabernacle represented this fact that there's one way to the presence of God, and Jesus Christ is that one way, and it's large enough for anyone who believes to get through there. The Lord Jesus said that narrow is the way and difficult is gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. But even though that's true compared to the fact that the road to destruction is very wide, the way to Christ, the way to God, the way to eternal life is still wide enough for all who will come. The altar in the courtyard 
symbolizes the fact that Jesus Christ himself was the ultimate sacrifice for sin. The basin of water symbolizes the fact that Jesus Christ himself is the one who washes sin away. He is the only way that people can know the true God. There is no one that can be saved apart from Jesus Christ. There's no one that can be delivered from sin and reconciled to the one true God apart from Jesus Christ. All those things pointed to that fact. The lampstand points to the fact, John chapter 8 and verse 12 lets us know that Jesus said he's the light of the world. And when he saves a person, let me tell you what he does, he enlightens us. And it's by his light that we walk the path of righteousness. He enlightens our path for us. He helps us understand things we could not understand apart from him. He helps us understand the spiritual. And those in the natural cannot do that. And so he enables us to have the right worldview, to know what really is right, what really is wrong, what is true about him and what is false about him and how we're to live this life right now. First John chapter one and verse seven says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Lampstand pointed to Jesus. The table of showbread, that showbread pointed to this fact, John chapter six and verse 35, the Lord Jesus Christ said that he is the bread of life. It speaks of this fact that he is the one who gives sustenance to us. He is the one who provides for us. What I'm here to tell you this morning, my brothers and sisters, is this, there is nothing Jesus cannot do in our lives. What I'm telling you this morning is that he is who we need. A lot of times we do a lot of things to try to help us in this life, and some things are good, but I'll just tell you this. Without Jesus Christ, we have no hope, but he is enough for us. He can minister to us in the deepest of valley. He does not waste a trial. He is there with us to sustain us and strengthen us. And one thing I've been aware of here lately that is just, it makes me want to praise him even more is the fact of his sovereignty. I see his hand working in things and having the right people in the right places at the right time for the right things and, and, and just knowing and seeing that he is working. He amazes me. I'm telling you this, I need him each day. I'm so thankful I have him. I believe one of the reasons why the Lord led me to preach through the book of Hebrews is because of this. We need to understand how great Jesus is. We need to understand the superiority of Christ and that he is all we need. Showbread emphasizes the sustenance that he brings to us. The altar of incense reminds us of what Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 says, and that is... The Lord Jesus is constantly interceding for us. He is our intercessor. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 tells us that he sympathizes with our weaknesses and that he helps us. He tells us to come boldly before the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. He is the one uh, that... Uh, uh, sufficiently helps us each day. But it also reminds us of this, and I'm talking about the altar of incense, that you and I, because of the work of Jesus Christ, have access to God through prayer. We can talk with Him. 
John chapter 14, verse 13 and 14 tells us that whatever we ask in His name, He will do. John 15, 7 says, if we abide in Him, whatever we ask, He will do. He gives us access to God. He is the great high priest. He establishes a new and everlasting covenant. Now, let me share with you three things about this new covenant. First, the new covenant is established to bring us into the presence of God. Verse 11 and 12 uh, show us this or give this implication. The Lord Jesus came with a greater and more perfect tabernacle. The tabernacle on earth was one that was transitory. It was going to pass away. It was not sufficient. Uh, but Jesus, the tabernacle He ministered in is the ultimate tabernacle, the one that the earthly one was symbolic of, and that is the tabernacle of heaven. That is the very dwelling place of God. And because of what Jesus did, He enabled us to be able to go into the very presence of God. Do you know the high priest, the Levitical high priest, could not take the people with him into the most holy place? But the Lord Jesus Christ took us with him spiritually into the most holy place. You know, the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 6 that our hope is anchored behind the veil. Do you know, when I was saved, my life changed in a, in a radical way. And I began to recognize something very young in my faith. And that is how that I do not belong on this earth. And the older I get, the more I recognize I don't belong here. Sometimes, and it's just the strangest thing that you have this feeling. So maybe some of y'all have this same feeling. Sometimes I'll go back home to North Georgia where I was raised, a very dear and special place to me where I find a lot of peace when I go there. But a lot has changed since we left there. And, and deep down in my, in my heart, as much as I enjoy going there at times, I realize I do not belong there. God has called me to be right here and, and to serve and love the people that God's called me to serve here in this church and done that for the last 23 years. What an incredible blessing those 23 years have been. I pray there'll be many more that we serve the Lord together. But do you ever, and some of you were raised right here, generations of your family were here as I was in North Georgia. But do you ever get this feeling that, you know what, I just don't belong here anymore? You know what that is? We get that sense because... We're really, in a spiritual sense, seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us that we're no longer really a citizen of this earth. Now, I've got a citizenship here in the United States of America, but I'm going to tell you this. The Bible tells me that I'm a citizen of heaven in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Ephesians 6, or excuse me, Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 6 says this. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see that? He made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's 
In the spiritual sense, we are already there in the presence of God. A place where those of Israel did not have that access, not by the sacrificial system, only by faith in the one true God. <laughs> Jesus came to establish this covenant to bring us into the presence of God. Secondly, the new covenant is established through the sacrifice of Christ, verses 12 through 14. Under the old system, when the Day of Atonement came, the high priest would put on his priestly garb and it would be real beautiful and ornate. He'd put on the breastplate. <clears throat> It'd be close to his heart because he represented the people before God. He was that mediator. He would be offering preliminary sacrifices. And then the time would come for the Day of Atonement to take place where the sacrifice would be offered for the sins of all the people. And so what he would do at that point was he would sacrifice a bull. He would capture the blood he would take that blood into the Holy of Holies. No one went in there, only him on the Day of Atonement. He had to first go in there and he had to put blood on the mercy seat for his own sins. And when he would do that and quickly go out, uh, the people would be relieved to see him because he was ceremonially clean. If he had not been, he would have died there in the presence of God. So that, then he went out and as he went out, there would be two goats waiting for him. And there would be a lot drawn. And one lot would be to, to um, identify a, a goat for a sacrifice to the Lord. And the other would be the scapegoat. So what he would do, that one that was, that was chosen to be the sacrifice for the Lord would be sacrificed, the blood caught in the cup again. They would take that back into the Holy of Holies, put that on the mercy seat for the sins of the people of Israel. And then he would go back out of the Holy of Holies, back out of the tabernacle to the outside courtyard where the goat would be, that the scapegoat, place his hands on the scapegoat, a scapegoat as to transfer the sins of the people on that scapegoat. And then they would set that goat free into the wilderness, uh, hoping it would never come back. It would get out there, get lost, get killed, whatever out there. You would not want that thing to come walking back. Now, why, what was that all about? The blood was applied on behalf of the people to satisfy the wrath of God towards sin, to satisfy God's justice. That's why it was sprinkled there on the mercy seat. And then the scapegoat symbolizes the pardon of the people. Their sin was separated from them. Now, I would imagine that probably those people would have had a sense of relief there for a moment, no, no guilt and shame for just a moment because this work had been done, but then there was always in their minds, well, what if the goat comes back? Or, or what if I do something or think something and immediately I've sinned again and don't, don't know it? So there was not this completion of their forgiveness and a, and a peace and a joy that would come through a cleansed conscience. And so there was an inadequacy uh, of this system because this system pointed to an ultimate and great high priest who would also be the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of all. There are three things in verse 12 said about the Lord's sacrifice through which this covenant was established. First of all, he offered his own blood, not that of animals. And the case is made here by the writer of Hebrews if, you know, the blood of uh, bulls, the blood of calves, and 
goats and the sprinkling of, of the ashes of a heifer could um, purge sin, could cleanse temporarily. And by the way, the, the uh, ashes of a heifer, there would be a burnt offering of a heifer and be burned so completely that the ash would be taken and put in the water and that would be used to cleanse people ceremonially. So if they, for instance, came in contact with a corpse or something like that, then they would go and be washed and that would wash that away, make them ceremonially clean. If, if those things would work on a temporary basis, how much more would the blood of Jesus Christ have effect against the sins of people? And so he offered his own blood. But secondly, verse 12 lets us know that he offered the sacrifice once for all. There would never have to be another sacrifice. There were never ending sacrifices under the old covenant, continually sacrificing for this sin and that sin. There always had to be a day of atonement. Even after that day of atonement was completed, there would have to be another one, just over and over. But the Lord Jesus Christ came to be the ultimate once and for all sacrifice for sin. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 said, He tasted death for everyone. So once and for all, for everyone, He made provision through His sacrifice. A third thing about it is, it provided through this sacrifice eternal redemption to those to whom it is applied. Provides eternal redemption. They didn't have the security of that under the sacrificial system. They were always concerned about, about that. Well, what his sacrifice does is it is complete. Y'all still with me? I want you to hear what I'm about to say. I believe we need to hear this. His sacrifice is sufficient to take away past sins, present sins, future sins. It's a complete cleansing that takes place when a person comes to know Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says it this way, There is therefore now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 and verse 33 says, Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The psalmist says in Psalm 103 and verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Micah said it this way in chapter 7 and verse 19, that our sin has been cast into the depths of the sea, picturing a complete forgiveness. They are gone forever. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12 and chapter 10 and verse 17 says, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Hallelujah be to God for the completeness of His forgiveness to establish us holy and righteous before God, not based on our works, that's impossible, but by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and this ultimate sacrifice and the fact that he is the ultimate great high priest. There is complete forgiveness through the establishing of this new covenant through his ultimate sacrifice. Well, this new covenant establishes a way in which we enter the presence of God Secondly, it is established, this new covenant is, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then third, here's what is produced 
for those who call on Jesus. The new covenant establishes a relationship with God to serve him. Spurgeon said, the Lord did not come to earth to make reconciliation by the holiness of his life, and that was part of it, or by the earnestness of his teaching, but by his death. And through Christ's sacrifice and acceptance of this sacrifice through faith, repentance, there is complete cleansing of conscience to serve the living God. Now, conscience is that faculty that God gives to us to determine right and wrong. And the fall into sin has disabled that to a great degree. So that you can't rely on your conscience because you can sear it. Matter of fact, you can ignore it so much that you become very hardened where it no longer provides a warning system for you whatsoever. And that's why we need cleansing from our sin. That's why we need the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God living in us to understand the truth of God, to know what's right and wrong, to, to know how to live life. And so what's being said here is that in Christ, there is an ultimate cleansing of conscience where there is no more shame, no more guilt, but there is peace, there is joy that Brother Bobby was talking about earlier, that hope that we have, that's initially established when we come to Christ through faith in Him, and we're forgiven, and the Spirit of God enters us, and then we continue to maintain that, not maintain our salvation, but maintain for our sanctification an obedience to Him that helps us now have a good conscience. You ever done something, and then all of a sudden there's a disruption of the peace of God in you? And it's, that, it's the Holy Spirit warning us, speaking to us, convicting us, we often say. So Paul taught in many places how we're to maintain a good conscience. That means to obey the Lord and have a good conscience. He said in Acts chapter 23 and verse 1 that he, he had a good conscience toward God. He said that again over in verse 16 of chapter 24. He wrote to the Corinthian church about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12. He encouraged Timothy with that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Even the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 and verse 18 speaks about having that good conscience. That just speaks of being obedient. So here's what happens. He saves us, cleanses us to do what? Serve the living God. Notice it emphasized here he's the living God. You know why? Because he's the only God. There's a lot of false gods out there. There's one true God. And He cleanses us to serve the living God. He did not save us to go live any way we want to. He did not save us to go live like the culture says we are to live. He did not save us to go out and do all the things everybody else in the world's doing right now. He saved us to serve the living God. That, that word serve there is not your normal word for serve. It is the word that was used to describe the duties of the priest. That reminds me of what 1 Peter chapter 2, I mean, excuse me, chapter uh, 1, uh, yeah, chapter 2 verse 9 says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. For what? that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
He saved us to serve Him, not live any way we want to. And I think there are many Christians today living like we want to. And we'll sprinkle a little bit of religion in. And so what we're doing is we're living kind of like, kind of like Old Testament people to a certain degree. You know, you, 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 um, you just kind of go through the motions of this never-ending religious cycle. I think that's what some of us do. We, we go out and we separate church from everything else we do. We separate church from our recreation. We separate church from our workplace. We separate church from our, from our nightlife. We separate church from everything. When here's the facts. In every aspect of life, we're to serve the living God. What does that look like? That means in your home, you serve God. It means out in the community, you serve God. It means in the workplace, you do your job with a kind of work ethic that brings honor to the Lord and you interact with your coworkers in a way that brings honor to the Lord. You wanna be a light and a witness to them. You wanna do your job, not just to benefit you, not just to get your own way about things. You wanna do what you do for the glory of God in your workplace. It means that you are dedicated and devoted in your local church. You will be there and you will use the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit of God has assigned in your life. You will take of your resources and give portions of your resources that God has given to you for the work of the kingdom of God. You will be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever you do. There is not one area of your life in what you say to people, how you act on social media, what you do at, at, at gatherings, uh, everything is to bring honor and glory to God in those aspects. That's what we're saved to do. That's what we're saved to do. He cleanses us to serve the living God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says, And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We're called to serve him. The new covenant established by the Lord Jesus Christ is superior to the old covenant. It is through Jesus Christ that we gain access to God, into his presence, into an eternal relationship with him that brings fulfillment and hope and purpose. That's why a person cannot be fulfilled any other way than that close relationship with Jesus. And let me tell you what I've been thinking here lately. Uh, I've been thinking about this a great deal here lately uh, in the past few weeks because on my time off, uh, one of the books that I read on my time off was a book by a friend of mine from my hometown. And he has been a pastor for many, many years. He's retired now. Uh, he, he pastored, he was a Methodist pastor. He, he pastored a large church in the Johns Creek area, Fulton County, uh, where they ministered to about 25,000 people. Uh, and so he just, God's used him a great deal over the years. But so I read this book he's written, it's called Sowers. And it's about people that sowed into his life. And my dad is one of those people that he wrote about in that book. And here's what it reminded me of. It reminded me that if we would just live a simple and devout life to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
He will use us to impact in so many ways. And the fact is, most of us will never know the depth of that impact until one day we stand before Jesus. A simple and devout life. There's power when the people of God live in such a way. We just serve Him. You know, today maybe, after hearing what I've just said, you just first of all need to say to the Lord, Oh, thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your sustenance in my life. Thank you for your provision, your daily help, the strength that you give. Thank you for the eternal life that you have given to me based on your ultimate sacrifice. One of the worst things we can ever do is forget what Jesus has done for us. So maybe we need to praise him today for what he's done. And then secondly, maybe today what's happened is this. We'd say, okay, he saved me to serve, but I'm telling you, you may say, I'm not living that kind of life right now. I'm so caught up in the world, practicing the things everybody else is doing. Matter of fact, my great desires are to go out and fulfill my flesh every day. Well, that's not what God saved you for. That's not what you're saved for. You're saved to serve Him. And so today, today we have an opportunity to say, okay, Lord, forgive me for how I've been living. And right now I'm dedicating my life to serve you. That's what you saved me for. Help me in every aspect of my life, everything, to honor you. And then there could be some in this room and those online, and, and the whole time the Holy Spirit has been saying to you that you need this relationship that Jesus Christ offers. You need to enter the gate. <laughs> you need to apply the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ has provided for your life. Because you might know this, you've never accepted Christ. You've never truly been born again. You've not received Him by faith. But today you recognize that. And so what you need to do right now is, is, you, need to, is you need to turn to Him and turn away from your sin. And trust Him to be your Lord and Savior. And He will take your sin away. And He will make you righteous. He will give you eternal life. Will you call on Him today? Will you call on Jesus to be your Savior? Let Him change you forever. We're going to stand to sing in just a moment. And as we begin to sing, I'd ask you to get up out of your seat, you come down here and say, I need Jesus Christ as my Savior. This altar is open, and what we ought to be doing is using the altars. We should be coming before the Lord and spending time in prayer before Him right now in the aftermath of hearing what He said to us. And may this be a time that we do not take for granted, that we do not belittle, that we do not just think simply about getting out of here and getting somewhere else, but we do business with God today. That we get things in right order with him. Some may need to join this church because 
This whole time you've been thinking, you know, I really need to be a part of this church. I've been coming for a while. I, I, need, to, I need to, you know, you're a saved person. You say, I, I want to identify with this body of believers. I want to serve here, get plugged in here. And so as we stand to sing, I'd invite you to come and meet us down front. And if you've got questions about that online, you can text us at 850-638-1830 and text the word NEXT. And you'll see some options that you can choose from. And some of our team will get in touch with you. So I'm going to pray. And let's just obey the Lord. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this message. I want to thank you for how you used it in my life. And I pray, Lord God, you've used it today in both services. And now, Lord, I pray that we would obey what you've spoken to us about during this time. And so I just dedicate this time to you right now. And I pray for you to move and work for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, please.